Please be seated. Um, it's not normally my practice to read the sermon text, and uh, definitely not two weeks in a row. And uh, so let me explain why I'm doing it again this week. Um, one is uh, this is a very long text, and I don't want to run out of friends in the congregation by asking people to read long texts. Uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, I wanted us this morning to have the whole chapter on the table so that we could see uh, the prominence of a particular theme that Jesus is emphasizing in Matthew 6. And that theme is the fatherhood of God. It's uh, concentrated uh, very dramatically in this chapter. So now as I, as I read uh, the text and as you follow along with me, I want you to be alert to all of Jesus's references to the Father and the way that Jesus is painting a portrait of uh, the Father's character. So hear the word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters for either. He will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there without watering the earth and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the earth, The eater so, Father, you promise your word will be that comes forth from your mouth. It will not return to you void. It will accomplish what you purpose for it. It will succeed in the matter for which you send it. And so, Father, I look forward uh, by faith to the harvest of faith in this congregation. uh, To a deepened faith for the saints and for the harvest of salvation that you would make this day the day of salvation for many. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to have the whole uh, chapter on the table, as I said, so we could see how everything uh, Jesus describes in this chapter, he grounds. It's amazing. It's a very dense chapter, right? There's a lot of practical instruction that Jesus gives us about the Christian life and about what it means to to live as a Christian. And and Jesus anchors all of it. And you could say everything about it is in orbit around this central, massive reality of the fatherhood of God to Jesus's disciples. If you have if you are Jesus's disciple, he is saying, then you are the son of God. You have God as your father. It's an amazing thing that he's saying. We're so used to this language. It doesn't shock us the way it would have shocked uh, Jesus's uh, first century Jewish hearers. Did you know that there is not a single place, not even one in the entire Old Testament, not one in which an individual believer is identified as a child of God and is and is able to call upon God as his or her father? Not once. I 
Think about the the Sermon on the Mount just so far. In chapter 5, Jesus uh, refers or describes uh, or identifies God as the father of his disciples three times. In verses 16, 45, and 48. And then in chapter 7, the other bookend of the Sermon on the Mount, he identifies God as the father of his disciples once. But in chapter 6, he does it 12 times. Now, that tells you something. It tells you that there is uh, an importance to this theme that, is, uh, that, that affects every aspect of the Christian life. In fact, that is so central to the living of the Christian life that in, Jew- in Jesus' uh, mindset, right, we can't know what it means to be his disciple apart from knowing ourselves and rejoicing in our standing through Christ of having God as our Father. So this morning what I want to do is I want to introduce this theme of God's fatherhood because it's so prominent in chapter 6. And then next week we'll look at some of the, some of the specifics. But this morning uh, I want to think about this theme with you under three headings. The treasure of God's fatherhood, the character of God's fatherhood, and the gift of Of God's fatherhood, the treasure, character and gift of God's fatherhood. Let's think first about the treasure of God's fatherhood. Now, many of you, I know, have read Jab Packer's book, Knowing God. And uh, if you haven't, it's one you ought to to pick up and you ought to work through. It is a tremendous uh, book. Uh, Maybe uh, I I think after like Pilgrim's Progress or something like that, it's one of the biggest selling uh, Christian books ever. And uh, in chapter 19 of that book, he, he says something uh, very remarkable about the value of God's fatherhood and what it means to be a God's child. Listen to this. You sum up, this is Jack Packer, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. That's quite a sentence. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. Personalized, right? If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. And of course, Packer is getting this right from the New Testament, right? When Paul says in Galatians 4, he says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son into the world in order to, born under the law, born, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because we are sons... God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Packer is simply, I think, 
being faithful to what the New Testament is teaching us. Not just the Apostle Paul, but also Jesus. Jesus is saying this is so central, this reality of God's fatherhood toward my disciples is so critical that what Jesus does in chapter 6, he begins it in chapter 5, but what he does in, in just very dramatically in chapter 6 is he paints this portrait of God's fatherhood, doesn't he? And, and he ties it to every aspect of our lives. Right? This is immensely practical according to Jesus. Just think about all the subjects that Jesus anchors, all the aspects of a Christian's life that Jesus anchors in the fatherhood of God. It determines our worship, how you pray, right? How you, how you uh, live the Christian life. It, 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 it affects our ambition in life. What reward are we living for? It, it affects how we think about our money, both in the giving and the needing and the using of it. God's fatherhood completely determines our praying. God's fatherhood is intimately connected to our bodies and our stomachs and our refrigerators and our daily needs and our work. God's fatherhood shapes our relationships with others. Think about the Lord's Prayer and then the charge that Jesus gives at the end about forgiving one another. Uh, the fatherhood of God, according to Jesus, shapes or should shape and determine all the ways that we think about the future, the ways that we process uh, our temptations to anxiety, everything. It should affect the way we look at nature, what we learn from nature. It, it's absolutely central, according to Jesus, to everything about the Christian life. You can't, the way Jesus has painted this portrait, you can't, you can't say, oh, the fatherhood of God is this optional part of being a Christian that I can think about Jesus without thinking about the Father of God. It won't work that way. But Jesus loves His Father. I mean, just think about how much He must love the Father. You read chapter 6 and you think about the way He describes the Father. And He, he just delights to think about how the Father is... Everywhere, all the time, and always there for His children with power and wisdom. You know, I've been reading uh, in, the, in the schedule of my Bible reading, I've been, for the last month, I've been in Proverbs. And I just love Proverbs. And I'm always so sad when I get to the end of Proverbs in the schedule. It's just so rich. And what hit me with such force, because, you know, I was reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount with, you know, one part of my days and reading the book of Proverbs in the other part of my days. And what, what just struck me so powerfully this year was, you know, yeah, it's true that, and, and very dramatically so, and there's an important reason for this that we'll think about later, it's true that in the Old Testament the fatherhood of God is not revealed. But you know what's interesting? The book of Proverbs, its very shape is a, is a father's entrusting to his son the treasure of the fear of the Lord. 
So even though the doctrine of adoption is not detailed in the Old Testament, in the very canon itself, we've got a book, the book of Proverbs, which in its shape is a father addressing his son about the fear of the Lord and and doing so in order to build the son up because the father sees farther than the son does and is aiming at the son's flourishing. And friends, that's what Jesus is doing for us in the Sermon on the Mount. He loves his father. He loves the treasure of the truth of his father. And he wants us to love the father as well. Now, let's think, secondly, about that's the treasure of God's fatherhood. We see it in Jesus' emphasis, his passion that we see this portrait, the details with which he paints this portrait. Now let's think about just kind of pastorally, uh, for some of us, that's a hard thing to hear. Right? I mean, for some of us, if we're honest about it, uh, either that feels like an excruciating thing that doesn't feel like a treasure. It feels excruciating or it feels uh, perhaps even a little inaccessible because of our experience of human fatherhood. And what do we do with that? Well, I think that the gospel, I think that Jesus is teaching, uh, give us a tremendous uh, resources in order to be able to think rightly about this. And there's a, both a strain of comfort that we need to think about and also challenge. So think first with me about the whole uh, theme of comfort here for those of us whose experience of human fatherhood has been painful. On the one hand, the gospel does not call us to diminish the pain of our experience. I want you to hear me say that. In fact... As Jesus makes clear, what he's saying to us is that the gospel actually equips us to be able to deal with it rightly for the first time in our lives. And it does that by bringing us into a relationship with the true Father. The Father who is the ultimate father, the father who actually is the meaning of fatherhood, the father who, whether we realize it consciously or not, is the standard against which we measure all fathering. And the gospel brings us into this relationship. Jesus has come in order to call us into a relationship with this Father through Christ and in that relationship to discover, as He's shown us in chapter 6, that the true Father, the everlasting Father, is a Father who knows, who sees, who brings compassion and strength for the building up and protection and provision of His children. So the reality of our painful experiences, God is not calling us to diminish them or to abandon them, but he's calling us on the basis of his own perfect fatherhood to entrust that experience to him. And there's a there's a word of challenge in there as well for every one of us. Right. Not only are we not called by the gospel to diminish, ignore, deny the pain of our experience of human fatherhood, but we're also called at the same time not to exaggerate it and not to give it more power in our lives to define us than it should have. 
Because the fatherhood of God is the fatherhood of God. And we're not called to have any gods before God. And so, friends, Jesus is is saying remarkable things here that are simultaneously uh, infinitely tender and yet very tough because we can react to pain in one of two wrong ways, right? We can ignore and deny that the pain is there or we can elevate that pain beyond its true proportions and let ourselves be consumed by it and defined by it. And the gospel comes in and Jesus comes in with this news of a father who is stronger than our darkest experience. And so the question becomes, which uh, father are you going to listen to more? On Saturdays, I, uh, I take Luke for his uh, guitar lesson, and, and then I will typically go to the Paneras and sit at Paneras. And uh, it's very noisy in there. drives me nuts. Because I usually have the sermon or Sunday, whatever I'm doing for Sunday night, and I'm trying to work on it. And, you know, you sit there. And there's so much noise going on. There's so many conversations. And I am such an eavesdropper. Okay, I'm there figuring out, okay, I've got, okay, I feel like a detective. You know, I, I, I listen to these, get these little snippets and I create a whole story that got us to this table. These people don't even know I'm doing it. I'm glad they don't know I'm a pastor. Okay. So what I've learned I have to do so I stay focused. Is there certain music I need to listen to? And the volume needs to be loud. Because I've learned that if I just leave my brain alone, I'm going to pay attention to the wrong things. Friends, you have to fill your mind with the music of the gospel and the beauty of God's fatherhood. Listen. Soak in. Plant your roots in Jesus' portrait of the Father. It doesn't matter whether you've had a good father. Praise God if you have. Your heavenly Father is infinitely better. And what will make the sure sign of a good father is that a good human father will always say that the heavenly Father is better. Maybe you've had a bad human father. Well, praise God that you have a greater father. Maybe you've had a father who's been absent, defined by his absence. Well, praise God that you now have a heavenly father. And draw near to him. Because his fatherhood is a treasure, according to Jesus. And it's a treasure because of the character of God's fatherhood. Think about how Jesus describes him. Let's... Notice this portrait. We have the whole, this is our second point now, the character of God's fatherhood. He's got this, this comprehensive portrait that Jesus gives us, this very interesting portrait. I just find this totally fascinating. Because on the one hand, Jesus shows us that our father is a kingly father. And at the very same time, he shows us that he's a fatherly king. So his Kingship is defined by his fatherhood, and his fatherhood is defined uh, by his kingship. It's an amazing uh, combination. Uh, I don't know anyone like this except for him. 
So let's think first about how Jesus shows us that that God is a kingly father to his children. And what I mean by that is that he's he's a father with authority and power and knowledge and control. Now, think about how Jesus describes him. He always describes him as the father who is in heaven or your heavenly father. He calls him your heavenly father three times and your father or the father in heaven two times. What's he emphasizing? He's no ordinary father, right? He's high and he's exalted. He's a king. And he also shows us that this father is the judge of all men and the rewarder of all men. It's He, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Did you notice that throughout the sermon? He alone forgives sins. He's got to be a king to do that. Only God can do that. And yet He's our Father. He forgives sins. It's He who bestows on men the rewards at the end of their lives. He's a kingly Father. And not only that, he's the father who knows and sees all things. He's he's omniscient. You know that word? He's omniscient. It it means that God knows everything, all things. And he's omnipresent. You know that word? It means he's present everywhere. And the father that Jesus describes is a kingly father because he is both omniscient. He knows everything about us. Think about what he says in, in verse 8. He says, pray then in this way. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And Jesus describes Him multiple times as your Father who sees in secret. Three times. Who sees in secret. What no one else can see. What we ourselves can't see about ourselves. And He's present everywhere. This is an amazing Father. He... Jesus says twice to us in verses 6 and 18. He's not just our Father who knows what we need. He's not just our Father before we ask Him. He's not just our Father who sees in secret. But I love this verse. I mean, twice Jesus says it. Verses 6 and 18. He says, your Father who is in secret. He's quite a kingly Father. And more than that, He's omnipotent. Right? Omnipotent. He has all strength, all power, all control. He's in control of everything. This is the character of the Father Jesus gives us, friends. He's in control of everything. He feeds and clothes His entire creation. Verses 25 through 33. Feeds and clothes and sustains His entire creation. I just think about what that means. About the extent of His control and His his knowledge and his ability to prepare for everything. You know, yesterday morning I was sitting out of my shed and I had the window open and I was, I got to this point in my preparation. I was just listening. God all of a sudden just prompted me to listen for the birds outside the window. And it was very noisy and I was trying to count the different birds just from their sound. And there are too many for me to count. I lost track of them. And I thought, God knows exactly. My Father knows exactly how many there are. He feeds every single one of them. And in order for Him to feed every bird of the air, that means He has to know where every seed is, where every insect is, where every berry is, where every fish is. Maria and I uh, were with Luke at the beach last, 
last Saturday, a week ago, yesterday, and we were there, and I love ospreys. I just, oh, man, those, that is, oh, I just love those things. And we were, we were walking down the beach, and all of a sudden I looked up, and there's this osprey, you know, with his brakes on, and he's hovering over the water. I'm glad we don't do services on video. And he's hovering over the water, and I'm like, oh, oh Maria, look, he's going he's gonna to get a fish. Somebody's going to buy it right now. And then, boom, goes in the water, comes up with a fish, flies away. And I thought, that is incredible. God is so gracious to that bird. You see, you either have you have two options. You either look at that and you say, well, that happened because of the Big Bang. Right? I mean, ultimately, that was an accident. Or, there's a person who feeds everyone and everything who's in control of everyone and everything, who is a king. And Jesus is telling us about the king who is our father. But not only is he a king, not only is he a kingly father, but he's a fatherly king. And at the same time, think about his omniscience. And his omnipresence and his omnipotence, those, those you, you could think about each one of those and, and be threatened by them, right? I mean, God knows everything. God uh, is everywhere all the time. God has limitless, infinite power. You could be threatened by those things. And unless you know him as your father, you will be. Right? But think about his omniscience. Jesus tells us, your father sees in secret three times. That's a kingly omniscience, isn't it? That he knows everything. That there are no holes in his knowledge. But friends, it's not the knowledge, that, it's not data. This knowledge that he has because he's our father, this omniscience that he has is, is not mere data to him. He is not like a computer or a library that is neutral with respect to the information it stores. You could have a bad book or a good book. There's no judgment. There's no motivation. Just a storage device. That's not how God's heart works. No, the knowledge that He possesses is a a fatherly omniscience. That's what Jesus is showing us. He sees in secret. He knows the, the deepest distresses of our own hearts. He knows our burdens. He knows the longings that we have better than ourselves. He sees to the bottom. He sees around the corner and knows what we need tomorrow and 20 billion years from now, what we will need to be sustained. That's the nature of His knowledge that Jesus is describing. That's a fatherly omniscience. But His omnipresence, your Father who is in secret twice, verses 6 and 18. And like the omniscience, you could be threatened by this, but it's a wonderful thing because, again, it's a Father, it's a King who is our Father. And so His presence everywhere is not like a spy or not like a surveillance camera or not like a wiretap. This is a Father who's, who's, who's moved by compassion for His children and in His knowledge of what they're going through and what they need and who comes with the greatest help that He can give them in His presence. Right? He's with 
us. And what Jesus says uh, when he says your father who is in secret, the you are there is in the singular. So he's emphasizing this personal uh, presence of God. When you close your door, friends, the door to your closet, as it were, and you pray. God not only sees you, your heart from afar, that's not all that he is, but he's he's with you in secret right there. A father's presence to help you. And he's in control of all things, his omnipotence, his power and his control. That means that what he does with his knowledge, what he does with his presence, he brings into that relationship with each of his children an infinite capability to come to your aid, to help you, to support you, to defend you. Do you see why Jesus is so taken by his father's character and its beauty and why he is so urgent in his commending the father to us? It's absolutely stunning. God's fatherhood is a treasure because his character is that of a kingly father and a fatherly king. And we don't choose between them. Jesus gives us both to him, to us. And then finally, right, we need to understand that God's fatherhood is a gift. It's a gift. It it comes to us not uh, by virtue of our creation, Okay, many people think that if you're a human being, you're a child of God. That is not what the Bible teaches. In no place does the Bible teach that. To know God as your Father and to know yourself as a child of the Heavenly Father, you must have Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And I want to be very clear about that because there's so much misunderstanding about it. And at the beginning of John's Gospel, like we saw last week, John says that to all, John 1.12, to all who received Him and who believed in His name, He gave the right or literally the authority to become the children of God. In other words, Jesus Christ holds monopoly power in the universe to bestow or withhold the status of a child of God and God's fatherhood from anyone. And there's only one way to have this gift, and it is for it to be given to you through Jesus Christ. You must receive Him, and you must believe in His name. And remember that Jesus is talking here to those who are already His disciples, those who have already repented And followed him because the kingdom has come. So don't read out of Matthew 6 if you're a non-Christian and you don't have this relationship with Christ and you haven't repented of your sins and you haven't received Christ's work as your substitute bearing your sins in his body on the cross. And God proving to you the reality of his lordship through his resurrection. If you haven't received that, if you haven't submitted to him in that, then don't read out of Matthew 6 a standing for yourself as a child of God that God hasn't given you. Instead, what I want you to see is that God is offering that to you right now. Today can be the day that you are made a child of God by the grace of God, adopted into his family. Oh, that we would see what a great privilege this is. 
What, a, what an astonishing gift this is. Friends, we just don't see it. We're used to the language, but as I said at the beginning, it doesn't shock us the way it should shock us that God, the eternal Creator, the Holy One of Israel, would be the Father and hold Himself out as the Father to everyone who would trust in His Son. That is a shocker. And we need to think about how new it is in order to feel the value. We need to think about what had to be put in place and had to be done in order to give that to us, in order to appreciate the value of the gift. When Jesus comes and he announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and when he announces to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that God is their Father, we need to know that something new and great has happened. You see, God couldn't be revealed as Father until there was a Son great enough to do it. And it wasn't until the coming of the Son into the world that God could be revealed as the Father. Jesus is the, the Bible tells us in many places that Jesus is the climax, the summit, the clearest revelation of God that God has ever given. In the person and work of Christ, we see, the, we see God most clearly, his true character. And Jesus, therefore, represents the climax of God's self-disclosure to men. And when we think about what the content of that revelation is, what it is that, that Jesus has shown us about God, think about it. Jesus has said that the kingdom has come, right? We've thought about that already in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's Jesus' presence and person that really represents the kingdom. But what's the kingdom like? Well, what Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount is that at its essence, the kingdom is familial. When God reveals himself most clearly and when we know him most truly, we will know him as Father. To his people. Father, like J.F. Packer said, is the Christian name for God. Another way to say that would be that Father is now the, the covenant name by which God means to be known by his people. And that has all happened because Jesus has come. The Son has come. And Jesus has come to give us his Father to be our Father. Now, remember last week when we were in John 20? And you remember what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene in John 20, verse 17? He says, now go tell my brothers, I am ascending to the Father. I am going to my Father and your Father. Which may have struck us as a little bit strange, right? I mean, why doesn't he just say, I'm going to our Father? You know, what's interesting is Jesus actually never says that in, the, in any of the four Gospels. He never says, I'm going to our Father. He would say, I'm going to my father. And he will talk about the disciples by saying that God is your father. And he'll teach the disciples to pray together amongst themselves like he does in the Lord's Prayer, our father. But he never includes himself with the disciples in in that way. And here's why. Because Jesus' relationship as the eternal son of God, Jesus' relationship with the father is is unique. But in the gospel, it's not exclusive. It's unique without being exclusive. Jesus has uh, 
his status as a son of God by virtue of his nature, right? We receive that through him, through the son, all as a gift of God's grace. And friends, when you think about what Jesus and the Father had to do in order to give us that standing, it's staggering. Right? I mean, if we're going to appreciate the gift of God's fatherhood that comes to us in the gospel, then we've got to know who we are and we've got to know who the Father is. Right? And what we know about the Father from what Jesus has already told us in the Sermon on the Mount is that He's perfect. Right? We saw that in chapter 5. He's absolutely perfect. And Jesus, at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is to be perfect. And what do we know about ourselves, friends? We know that we're not perfect, right? Particularly as we think about how Jesus has explained what the fulfillment of the law really means in chapter 5. So here we are. Here's the Father's glory. Who is going to dwell on God's holy hill? Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, friends, raise your clean hands if you've got them. And show me your pure heart if you've got it. How are we going to get into the house of God as sons, let alone servants? There's this gap. And friends, into that gap, Jesus gave himself as the one true and faithful Son. And the Father sent His Son into that gap to place Himself under all of the omniscience of God, under all the omnipotence of God, under all the omnipresence of God, under all the righteousness of God, to bear that weight that we ourselves had failed to bear and never could bear, to bear it in our place. And and Jesus gave himself so that we might receive his father as our father. And the father gave his son to sinners like us so that we might receive him as our father. Friends, we have received the reward that Jesus earned. Sonship, favor, welcome, inheritance. That's what Jesus earned in his life of perfect obedience. And Jesus willingly closed that gap for us between who we are and who the Father is, filled it up with his sacrifice of substitution, was the bridge, made himself the one to be under the weight of that gap so that we could receive the reward that he earned by his taking what we had deserved. And friends... It's to the degree that we see what Jesus has done for us in order to make us sons of God and what he has done for us in order for God to be our Father. To that degree, we will treasure and rejoice in the fatherhood of God. Let's pray. Father, come. You are worthy of so much praise and celebration in our lives. You're such an amazing and good Father kingly in your fatherhood and fatherly in your kingship. Teach us to know you and to value this great gift in standing more fully. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.